On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judith. Line and Land Ministries, welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Our Torah portion for this Sabbath comes from the book of Numbers, and chapter 25 is the portion we called, some people call it Phineas, some people call it Pincus. It's about one of the sons of Aaron, and something that's going to happen with him, with the children of Israel. Now, last Shabbat, if you'll recall, we talked about the story about Balak and Balaam and about how Balak had hired Balaam to come and curse Israel. As you know, going through that portion, Balaam was unsuccessful. He could not curse Israel. In fact, all he could do was bless him. And one of the greatest blessings that has upon Israel, Matovu, how good and how pleasant are the tents, O Jacob, is a blessing that came out of Balaam in that particular case. Now, Balak was very dissatisfied with what Balaam had done. I hired you to curse him, but instead you blessed him. And we believe there was a further dialogue between the two of them. 
And Balaam then offered some spiritual insight to Balak. And he said, look, he said, you're going about this the wrong way. You're not going to get a God to curse the people by you pronouncing a curse. If you really want God to curse the children of Israel, what you got to do is you got to get the children of Israel to not do what God has commanded them to do. You got to get them to do what Moses said not to do. And so what you got to do is you got to get the children of Israel to start messing around with other gods. Now, if you do that and you're successful, then their God, the God of Israel, will curse them himself and destroy them, you know, because they are a people dedicated only to the God of Israel. So Balaam gave this counsel. By the way, this is the part where Balaam really hurt Israel, because that is a true principle. God's people get destroyed not by our enemies. God's people get destroyed when we decide to compromise our faith and mix our faith with other gods. When we decide to make God irritated and unhappy with us, then we got a problem, not from our enemies, but from God. And so Balaam gave this counsel, and Balak decided to take advantage of it. So he dispatched his young sons and young daughters to go intermingle with the children of Israel where they're camping and invited them, their people to come and celebrate their festivals and vice versa, and will mix things up. And by the way, God does not like his things mixed with the world or any other gods. Whatsoever he gets very upset about that. And God himself says, he is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with any other God. And that means mixing his things with other gods and other religious practices. Now, I know a lot of Christians don't think much of that. Quite honestly, they want to believe in the, the Messiah, and they do. But they think that throughout church history, that because they're so powerful and because the church is so great, that the church can mix with all manner of things in the world, and it's okay because we have the grace of God, and that's what protects us, and it covers us no matter what we do. So we can go off and do other festivals. We can mix the commandments of God with other th customs and traditions, and it's okay. We are wrong. God has emphatically, over and over again, said he will not play that game. In fact, the reason why we had the split in Israel, the reason why the northern kingdom was broke off from the southern kingdom, was over this issue. The house of Ephraim separated from the house of Judah because, as they said, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we're still going to bake cakes to the queen of heaven. And God said, well, you're not going to do it with me. And so he separated the house of Israel from the house of Judah. And they went into captivity first. And God has always said again and again throughout history, even the Messiah has said these things, you cannot mix other gods with the Lord. He's a jealous God. He will not put up with it. So here is Balaam's counsel. Hey, take your gods, mix them with the children of Israel, with their God, and watch what happens. So with that event, 
we have this situation where they decided to do that. Now, guess what happened? It turns out that we have one of the princes of Israel. He's from the tribe of Simeon, and he hooks up with a princess from one of the Midianite kings. And they decide they're going to do their own thing. We're not, we're not following you, Moses and Aaron. We're not going to. We're going to do whatever we decide to do. This is what, when you're young and you're stupid, you know, you make these announcements, and despite what the elders and the older have said, you decide you're going to do your own thing. So they come to Moses and Aaron, and they announce, hey, you know, we're not doing what you're doing. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to intermingle, and we're going to do our thing. And basically, the, the way it happened was they decided to make a big deal out of us, willfully and defiantly do this, Zimri announces that he's going to have conjugal relations with this princess. He's going to take her in his tent, and he's going to have relations with her, whether they like it or not. And so he does. And he goes in there, and while he's in there, we are introduced to Phineas. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. And the Lord fills Phineas with the spirit of anger, indignation from God, and Phineas picks up a spear, and he runs in that tent, and he puts that spear right into Zimri, right through him, into this princess, right through her, and we have the very first Middle Eastern shish kebab. We got two people stuck on the same stick. Okay, now I'm, I'm trying to be facetious a little bit funny about this because this is a shocking event. God gave Phineas the authority to make what we call summary judgment. By the way, we are not recommending that you grab a spear and every time you see somebody disagrees with you in the faith that you go and impale them with a spear. That's not what this is about. This is a very specific story that happened in the land. And part of the reason why that was very important to happen is because at the moment that they went in there into that tent, God put a plague on the children of Israel right now. And the children of Israel started dying. And Phineas actually going in and impaling them with the spear stopped the plague. And we only lost 24,000 sons of Israel that day. That's really what the event is about. It's not about that we can have righteous indignation well up in us. Let's go grab a spear. And if anybody disagrees with this in the faith, let's go impale them. That's not at all what this is about. However, that's the event that took place. Now, with that, all that said, and let me, Phineas actually starts at verse 10 in chapter 25, but I'm going to back it up. And I want you to hear this part that I just mentioned to you here in the first part of chapter 25. If I was redesigning the teaching of these Torah portions, I would start at chapter 25, verse 1 for this portion. Let me read from there. While Israel remained in Shechem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, 
And the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. While they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose from the midst of his congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them both through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Let me repeat again a little more detail. God becomes angry. He sees what's going on. He tells Moses, I want you to execute every man who's involved in that practice of mixing me with, the, with their gods. Apparently, there was some hesitation. The people began to weep. Oh, my gosh, we've got in trouble with God. But the plague is going on. To stop the plague, we have Phineas steps up to the task. And this one man had came, Zimri, had come and willfully, defiantly, was mocking against what God had said and, and the judgment that was pronounced by Moses. And, and Phineas went in and took him out. Now, that's the background. And if you'll notice, verse 9, and those who died by the plague were 24,000. And now our portion begins at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Remember, God's a jealous God. He doesn't want to mix. He said that jealousy could have caused the death of all of Israel. But in his, he was operating in God's jealousy. By the way, jealousy normally amongst us, we consider to be a bad emotion. When God is jealous, it's a righteous emotion. And Phineas is operating in God's righteous emotion, not in his emotion, in God's righteous emotion. Verse 12, therefore say, behold, I give my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. He reconciled the problem between God and Israel. That, that problem was reconciled. Atonement was made. I want you to understand that that verse that I just read to you, verse 12 and verse 13, are some of the most profound scriptures that you will find in this book. And I'm referring to the entire Bible. First of all, it says that God has given to Phineas the covenant of peace. For those of you who've done more study about the covenants of God, one of the things that you learn is that God actually has seven covenants with mankind, beginning first with Adam and extending through Noah and then Abraham and then Moses and the children of Israel, then King David, all the way up to the Messiah and the new covenant. There's one more covenant at the end called the covenant of peace. It comes in the messianic kingdom. 
but here's Phineas way back in here, and he's getting it. He's receiving the covenant of peace. He's receiving personally the covenant that will be in the kingdom. Now let that just kind of resonate for you a moment. God has just honored him with the covenant of the kingdom. All right. Now here's what else he also has to say with regard to him that comes with that gift. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. When it says a perpetual priesthood, do you know what it's saying? A priesthood that will extend all the way into the messianic kingdom. That covenant of peace is in the messianic kingdom. He's going to be a priest and his descendants will be priests all the way into the messianic kingdom. Whoa, let's step back for a moment. If you're like most people, you've heard in the writer from the book of Hebrews that he said that the Levitical priesthood is a weak priesthood. He suggested that maybe it goes away. He's suggesting that the Messiah, who's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, has replaced the Levitical priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews is diminishing that role of that priesthood saying they have to repeat the same ceremony again and again. And, you know, it's not, it's not, a, they, they claim the Messiah is a better covenant. I agree the Messiah is a better covenant, but they're trying to diminish and take issue with the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood and the descendancy from Phineas that God just gave him the covenant of peace in the Messianic kingdom and said, your priesthood is perpetual. It extends all the way through. Anybody who teaches you and says, hey, Levitical priesthood has gone away, it's no longer applicable, is saying God is a liar here. That what he gave to Phineas is not true. Because he said, I'm giving you a covenant that extends into the messianic kingdom after the Messiah returns and establishes a kingdom, and you will have a perpetual priesthood before me. Now, mind you, Jeremiah echoes this same concept. In Jeremiah chapter 33, if you look in verses 17 and 18, it says that there'll never be a lack of a man to be on the kingdom or on the throne of David. And the man who is on the throne of David perpetually is the Messiah, the son of David. The son of David, he's on the throne of David forever. And the very next verse says, and there'll never be a lack for a Levitical priest to be serving before him forever. So if you believe in the permanency and the eternity of the Messiah being the son of David and being on the throne of David, being the king of Israel forever, then you also have to say, that the same God said the Levite priests are going to be serving before him perpetually forever. And here's Phineas being announced he's going to be for sure in the kingdom, and he's going to be serving the Lord in that kingdom. That is a very, very profound point. And it counters a lot of Christian dispensational and covenantal teaching. 
because we have a lot of Christians who say, well, what God did with Israel, that's been suspended, set aside. It's done over with. It's old covenant. It's been passed away. It's annulled. It's no more. It's been ended. We have the new covenant and the Messiah. All that other stuff has gone away. Here is God making a pronouncement way back before the new covenant says, oh, by the way, you guys are going to be all the way into the messianic kingdom past the new covenant. Whether you realize it or not, that is an incredibly profound statement and is absolutely contrary to the teaching of most of Christianity. Now, just to illustrate the thing, just to get your attention when you are reading the Hebrew scriptures, you see there, verse 12, where it says, Behold, I will give him the covenant of peace. Okay? The word there for peace, shalom. And the shalom word, the third letter, is the letter vav. And it's used in the text so that we get the O part of shalom. You know, it's, you get the O part phonetically out of that letter vav sitting there. Well, the scribes do something rather interesting with this shalom written right here. They draw the top part of the letter, and then there's a gap, a space. And then they draw the bottom part of the letter underneath it. It's pronounced. You, When you're reading in the Hebrew text in a Torah scroll, you'll see this. It's referred to as the broken vav. And what it's illustrating is a spear. There's a big spear. And there's a place in the middle of the spear where you don't see the spear anymore because it's the bodies of Zimri and Cosby stuck on the spear. There's, there's the shish kebab, if you will, of that skewer of the letter Vav has made to look like the spear that has impaled those two people. And you don't see the center part of the spear for it. That's a very interesting scribal mark that is given there in the text to get a Torah teacher to specifically stress the teaching of the covenant of peace that is being pronounced upon Phineas here at this point. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I will tell you as you go into the history of Israel and the priesthood of Israel, it's going to work its way down into King David. And if you recall, King David was the one that assembled all the materials for the temple that would be set up there in Jerusalem as opposed to them using the tabernacle. King Solomon built the, the temple there in Jerusalem. And one of the things that King David also did was to help establish the true priesthood that were the true descendants of, of Aaron that came through Eliezer and Phinehas. And they're called the Zadok priesthood. And the Zadok priesthood are also spoken of in future references as being a part of the kingdom. In fact, if you go to the book of Ezekiel and you get into the last several chapters where Ezekiel's talking about the future temple in the kingdom, he will make mention of the Zadok priesthood being at that temple in the kingdom. The Zadok priesthood are referred to as the descendants of Phineas. So this promise that God gives to him of the covenant of peace going to Phineas to his descendants, it also extends into the days of King David, King Solomon, the temple being built in Jerusalem, into them, and all the way to the book of Ezekiel, 
which is talking about that future temple way at the end, and they're being mentioned still at that point. Now, all of that transcends through Moses and the prophets. And again, let me go back to my point that I was making earlier. We live in a time when Christian teachers who are opposed to this teaching of the Torah being given to you, and they're opposed to these principles of the faith, they don't want these things to be true. So they deny what God has promised and prophesied here. Guys, let me, let me tell you something about God. And in fact, let, let me take you back into the last Torah portion. When last week when we were talking about what, what Balaam made a statement, Balaam made a rather interesting statement about God in his blessing. And it's in Numbers 23, verse 19, and it says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? One of the characteristics about our God is that he says, if he says it, that's the way it's going to be. For the life of me, I don't understand how we can have people claiming to believe in God, claiming to believe in the Messiah in particular, and yet they deny what God has said about himself. They think somehow because they got the Messiah, they can redefine who God is. And in fact, they teach that the Messiah came to transform and change things that his father did. To the suggestion that commandments given by his father, they're not relevant anymore. We don't have to do those anymore. Got, you know, the Messiah gave a, a law of him. He, he modified the commandments, he changed things, and he changed all of this kind of stuff. And we have, we have teachers in the Christian faith going around assaulting the very character of God, redefining the character of God based on their theology of what they thought the Messiah did, when in fact God has said of himself, I do what I say, and the Messiah say, I and the Father are one. And Yeshua said, I came to do the will of my Father. He didn't say, I came to modify the will of the Father. I came to do the will of my Father. That does not sound like he came to change anything. He came to complete and do exactly what his Father has said. There is no breach between the Father and the Son. There is no separation. There is no, well... The old man got the corporation going, but the young man's going to take over now, and he's going to make a few changes. No, that is not what the Scripture says. That is not what the Messiah said. Why is that being taught? Why is that being taught? Well, I'll tell you. I'll give you my opinion about why it's being taught. Because they don't really know what God said to begin with. They don't know what God said to Phineas here about the priesthood. They don't know what Balaam said about God, one of the enemies of God. They, they don't understand how eternal God is. And they think that we can get our faith, our religion, our God, if you will, let's get him to conform to us and kind of make this workable for us. And, and 
we have people literally walking around in the world today that says, well, you know, I know God created the heavens and the earth and all that, but you know, in modern times, things have moved forward and, and we have new rules now that life is different than it was before. And, and as a result, those guidelines and rules that God gave to us, we don't have to follow those anymore exactly the way he said, you know, we, we need to update the rules. Sounds like a bunch of liberals trying to explain why we should update the Constitution of the United States. They don't know what the Constitution of the United States says, by the way, if you pay attention to what these liberals say. And by the way, Christians don't know what the Torah says. Part of the reason why I'm coming to you to teach you is you desperately need to know what did God say back here? Because he made some statements here that go all the way to the kingdom. And it's not a temporary thing waiting for the Messiah to show up so he can go ahead and figure out what the new program is all the way into the kingdom. No, the God that started the creation is the God that's going to be in the kingdom. I always share this one point. I said, God has a plan A for mankind. He does not have a plan B. Everything is plan A. He has one plan. He's been working it the whole time. Now, men, if they get on board with the plan, do well. But if they get contrary to God's plan, they suffer the consequences. And there's a whole world of people who got contrary to his plan who died in the flood. But there were eight who were consistent with the plan, and they made it through to where we are today. And I'm telling you, we better be sticking to plan A of what God has put together and not try to come up with a new plan B for him. It's not going to work out for us. The remainder of this portion is going to do something kind of interesting. It's kind of a mini version of a review of other things we've seen here in the book of Numbers and elsewhere in the Torah. Chapter 26 is now going to go into another census. Do you remember when we started the book of Numbers, we numbered all of the children of Israel, took up a half shekel form, and we were able to determine that there were 603,550 men of war that were counted, and that became the army of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And now we have a renumbering of it, and guess what? It turns out, even with that generation being judged and dying in the wilderness, we're, we're at the end of the wilderness experience. We numbered the people again, and guess what? We still have another 600,000 people. Even though God judged that generation, he's still fulfilling his promise of saying to Abraham, your descendants will be as the stars of the heavens. They will be a number that's very difficult for you to number. By the way, the reason why 600,000 is a very interesting number to us, astronomers tell us that if you go up into the night sky, and it's nice and dark, if you can count the stars, you're approximately the average person's sight, you'll see 600,000 stars. So here's this number 600,000 again. God is still keeping his promise to Abraham. Your descendants will be as the stars of the heavens. And despite that generation being judged in the wilderness. So we have a recount here of it. In the course of the recount, we get to chapter 27, and we have a kind of an interesting dilemma. We discover 
that there is some people from the tribe of Manasseh. That is the the fellow tribe along with Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, in which that there's no men. There's daughters, but there's no men to receive the inheritance to be the leaders of that tribe. And there's a little bit of a dilemma about, well, how does the inheritance we're getting ready to have of the land, how do we disperse to the tribe of Manasseh if there's no men? Because everybody's thinking that it's a patriarchal system specifically for it. They have a conference about this in chapter 27. And Moses hears from the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh, and then he goes before the Lord. Verse 5, chapter 27 says this, And Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, The daughters um, of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. You have no idea how profound that statement is. We are literally laying out base laws and base rules for how do you distribute inheritance. This is the rule. Are you ready for this? This is the rule why Queen Elizabeth was made Queen of England. She didn't have any brothers. And when her father, the king, died, it didn't revert back to another line of the family. The inheritance or that heritage, that ancestry, dropped down to her, and they base it off of this Torah law. And today, the history, the world history we have, is predicated on this principle and this law. And that's the reason why that amongst families and so forth, a surviving daughter is considered equivalent rank of a surviving son for inheritance purposes. And that basic principle comes right from the store portion for it here. And it's been followed by the world essentially ever since, ever since to it. Now we're getting ready to come to the end of the life of Moses. And so that's being addressed here. Moses is going to make his final request of God, and specifically he's going to request that Joshua would receive the anointing and the leadership of all Israel as they cross into the land. And in fact, God agrees with him, and Joshua is going to become literally the general, the leader of the nation of Israel and all of the tribes for the conquest of the land. It's not going to break into individual tribes and go off and do their thing. Joshua will be appointed to the task to help them in the conquest of the land. And then in chapter 28, this is going to get rather interesting. Well, all of a sudden, we're going to have a repeat about the law of offerings. We're going to hear about the daily sacrifice offering. We're going to hear about the Rosh Hodesh portion offering. We're going to hear about the, the what was done at the new moon. We're going to hear about specifically what happens at Passover, what offerings are at Passover, what offerings are at the Feast of First Fruits, about Shavuot, and it's even going to go all the way to Trumpets, Atonement, and Yom Kippur, all the way to chapter 29, where it repeats that 
and then also about the high Sabbath and all the sacrifices associated with the essentially the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to be the conclusion of our portion. So let me, let's step back for a moment and let's ask this very logical question. I said, why is Moses repeating that stuff? I mean, you know, we can go to Leviticus 23. I can show you. But here we are at the end of Numbers, and, and he's saying it again. And this is a book specifically that's dealing with the people in the wilderness that are getting ready to go over into the land. Well, one explanation as to why this is repeated is the same reason that we see the repetition of the census that was done. We remember when they came out of Egypt, they took a census right off the bat. And then later on, they take a census at the end of the 40 years. And if you go back when the Torah was first given, there was a whole set of instructions about how to sustain them, keeping the Sabbath, about the appointed times of the Lord, Leviticus 23, essentially what we're talking about, how the, how the temple services were to be conducted. Temple was built, the tabernacle was built the first year, and, and it gives all the instructions for it. Now, here we are at the end of the wilderness experience. We're getting ready to cross over into the land. And here's Moses repeating certain key things the children of Israel have to continue to do. If you step back and you look at them, by the way, it's this pattern of what we do. We are in a generation where there's been a resurgence on the part of believers, believers in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the believers of the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, in which they're turning back to the teaching of Moses. And guess what? The people who are believers of the Messiah turning back to Moses are learning. Well, they're learning about Sabbath. They're learning about foods. What is food? What is not food? They're learning about clean and unclean. They're learning about new holidays. They're learning about the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. In fact, this ministry in particular not only emphasizes keeping Passover in your home, but we even host a feast of tabernacles here in Oklahoma for invite people to come. By the way, if you're not signed up for that yet, you need to register, come and join us for the Feast of Tabernacles in Oklahoma. It's a wonderful time of the year, and you'll have a ball. It's the season of joy the scripture talks about. And he's repeating again those things. Now, you would think, well, it's kind of redundant, isn't it? No, it's not. You see, if you're going to be faithful to the Lord as a Messianic believer, you got to do that Sabbath thing again and again and again and again. When you stop doing the Sabbath, you stop being faithful. You have to keep the Passover in the springtime. Every springtime, you got to keep the Passover. If you stop doing the Passover, you will cease to become be a, a Messianic believer. You've, you've turned away from Moses again. You have to keep the other biblical holidays, too, and including, as we emphasize and we teach here, the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Got to keep it. 
if you're going to be a Messianic believer, you're going to be marked in these days. You're going to be marked by a couple of very simple things. You talk about learning from the Torah. You talk about keeping Sabbath. You talk about eating clean and not unclean. And you talk about the Moedim and keeping the different holidays and commandments of the Lord. That's what you do. And if you don't do those things, well, then you're you're basic Christian and you're not aware of what these things are about. Here's Moses reminding this generation, the ones that survived the wilderness, say, hey, guys, when you get in the land, you got to do these things. Keep doing these things. Same exercise that we get, keep doing these things. Don't walk away from these things. Don't depart from these things. These are our basic teachings. These are the things that tell us about the Messiah to come. These are the ones that tell us about what God's great plan is for us, what's going to be happening in the future, and so that we understand our redemption and we understand who our God is. Failing to do these things, we move away from that instruction, and quite honestly, we become lost. More and more lost, don't know what God's doing, don't know what's going on, can't figure out which end is up spiritually. So let me leave you on this Sabbath, exhorting you, just as Moses did here in this portion, to maybe renew your enthusiasm for the instruction of Moses, specifically to understand Sabbath, to understand what the daily sacrifice is, to understand what Rosh Hodesh is, to understand what Passover and first fruits and Feast of Unleaven and Feast of Weeks and Trumpets and Atonement and Tabernacles is all about. Make them a part of your life as you join with all of Israel, all over the world, as we begin to follow the Lord. And because I can assure you, brethren, when we get to the kingdom, that's what's going to be happening in the kingdom. We're going to be doing that in the kingdom. All right, that's our portion for this week. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.